Jacob left Beersheba and headed out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord my God, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you, you give me, I will give you a tenth. Toby, thank you uh, so much. Like a little mini me, uh, still at the front, isn't it? Uh, I know that you're all feeling great pity for him uh, in that reality. Well, last weekend, if you were here, Kay introduced this fantastic story of Isaac and uh, Rebecca's twin sons. We started thinking about the story of Esau and of Jacob. And if you remember the story, you remember that Esau and Jacob wrestled with each other even when they were within the womb. God had revealed to Rebecca that she had residing in her womb two competing nations is how it was described. Two competing nations are represented in your womb. And on the, the very day that the twins were born, Esau, we discovered, emerged first. Uh, he was the hairy one. Uh, they knew uh, what his name would be. Esau means hairy. I, have you ever thought what your parents might have called you if they named you after the first thing they thought when they saw you? Ugh. Ooh, what's that? I'd have been called. So Esau comes out first, the hairy one. He's followed by Jacob, who was clutching onto uh, Esau's heel. He was known as the heel grabber. Esau grew up, we knew, to be strong and to be hardworking, to be something of an outdoorsy type, to be a hunter. We know that Esau became his father's favorite. But then there's Jacob. He was more of the quiet, domestic type. He spent more time at home, and he became his mother's favorite. Now, it's not unfair, is it, to suggest that they were a pretty dysfunctional family from day one. In fact, they were pretty dysfunctional from even when they were in the womb. So if you're worried about the dysfunction of your family, just keep reading Jacob's uh, story. This is a dysfunctional family. 
We know as they were growing up, Esau got deceived a, a couple of times by Jacob, and he ended up surrendering the double blessing and the inheritance that was rightly his as the first child. Now, he was only just the first child because Jacob came out quickly behind. But in that moment, as he was deceived by Jacob, Jacob ended up becoming the wealthy one and the leader of the family, and Esau was left with absolutely nothing. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in the story, but Jacob receives a blessing and an inheritance that he neither earned nor deserved. Despite Jacob's deceitful actions and his flawed character, God chooses to bless him abundantly. Now, I want us to hold on to that thought for just a moment. We're going to return to it as we finish. Jacob receives a blessing that he neither earned nor deserved. Now, we don't have time in our series, because Easter's really early this year, to look at the whole of Jacob's story, and so we're actually going to be jumping from chapter 25, where we were last weekend, to chapter 28, where we are this weekend. But I do want to encourage you, when you get home, do read the rest of the story that's captured between what we looked at last weekend and what we're looking at this weekend in Genesis. It will really encourage you, uh, and the plot line is more gripping than EastEnders, so uh, do have a read of it. Now, today we get to the story of Jacob's ladder. It's a fantastic story. In just 12 verses of Scripture, three things happen. Jacob runs away, Jacob runs into God, and Jacob runs home, in inverted commas. He runs away, he runs into God, and he runs home. There's an ow, there's a wow, and there's a vow in our story. Ow, wow, and vow. You don't get this in any other church. Maybe that's why you come here. So first, the owl, the running away. Now, Esau is understandably flaming mad, isn't he, with Jacob. He's frustrated. He's really bitter about Jacob's deception. And at the very end of Genesis chapter 27, the chapter before the one we're in today, Esau is found saying this, the time to mourn my father's death is near. I will then kill Jacob. In other words, in the Chris Brockway translation of the Bible, when my dad dies, I'm going to go and do my brother in. It's the essence of the story here. Esau is mad. Now, Rebecca overhears what's being said. The twins' mum overhears Esau's murderous threats, and so she disappears off to Jacob. She says, look, you're my favorite one. I want you to run away. Go and stay with your uncle. Um, Go and stay with your uncle until such time that Esau forgets about everything you've done to him. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Nobody ever forgets the hurt that other people have done to us. Esau is never going to forget his brother's treachery. And you know, the truth is we don't ever forget the pain that others inflict upon us. At best, we might learn to forgive somebody, but we don't forget. At least we maybe learn to to live with the treachery and somehow get by. Or I guess at worst, we can spend the rest of our lives dwelling in bitterness about that thing that somebody else has done to us. The tragedy, of course, is that the hurt that other people cause us can cause us to make some very um, questionable life choices as well. And that happens in the story of Esau, if you know it. He ends up taking himself a wife, which actually is a really bad decision in terms of who he chooses. Why does he do that? He does it because Jacob hurt him. The sin of others can cause us to make very difficult life choices. Hurt people hurt people. 
Now, as we get into verse 10 of uh, chapter 28, Jacob is literally running for his life in this moment. He's scared. He's tired. He's really lonely. He's carrying that kind of deep, ouchy pain inside of him. I'd really love to think that Jacob's character is not so shipwrecked before God that actually he's maybe even feeling a bit of guilt about what he's done. Just maybe he's starting to feel remorseful for what he has done. We find Jacob this morning in a dark place, we might even say a depressed place, and he knows what it is to feel the pain of living, and he knows the ow of his sinful actions. Now, Jacob's journey travels from Bathsheba in the south to Haran in the the north. Now, this was a journey of some 500 miles, and he had to walk, right? Good walk, 500, see what I did there? Yeah, thanks, Ruth. Now, are we allowed to talk about Scotland today? I don't know if we are, but here's a, a, ge- a geographical reference for you. Uh, ge- John O'Groats uh, to Land's End is about 500 miles by, by road. That's the kind of distance that Jacob was having to travel. And we read in the story that Jacob travels about 50 miles, and, and, and after he's done his 50 miles, he's tired, it's starting to get dark, and we read in verse 11 that he stopped in a certain place, a certain place it's described as. Now, we later know that place is called Luz, but at this point in the story, we just know it as a certain place. It's not named, it's kind of nondescript. And I think that's important because it it reveals to us that actually Jacob didn't stop in a special place or he didn't have a great plan. He just happened to stop in this place that he would later call Bethel, which means house of God or holy ground. And he picks it because darkness is coming in and he's starting to feel tired and weary. There's nothing special or anointed about this place. But I think, too, we discover from this description that Jacob has got no desire, really, no intention of meeting with God at this point in his life, least of all in this nondescript geographical location. His only concern is that of survival. Jacob is not giving God a, a second thought on his journey, and, uh, and, but, but do you notice what happens in the story? When he least deserves it, and when he's in the darkest possible place geographically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually... God finds him and has an unexpected encounter with him. I don't know if you've noticed as you've read through the Bible that actually God's got a bit of a, bit of a funny habit of doing that. He's got a funny habit of encountering people when they're in a tough place and when they least expect him. Maybe that's true of your own story, your own journey of faith. That's how you first encountered God in a tough place and when you least expected it. There's an owl in this story Jacob's sin is creating all sorts of ouchy problems for him and for his family. And then we get to the, to the wow. And in the wow, what we discover in, in verses 12 to 15 is that Jacob ends up running into God. Imagine the sights and the sounds for just a moment uh, here. This is a massive wow moment for Jacob. He's exhausted. He's weary from his travel. It's hot. His eyelids are starting to get heavy. So he finds a rock, and he positions the rock, and he uses it as a pillow, and then he drifts off to sleep. Well, Jacob then has, we read, this this crazy dream, and he starts to see what some Bible translations describe as a ladder and other Bible translations describe as a stairway or a staircase that reaches between heaven and earth. Now, whatever it was, whether it was a ladder or a staircase, Maybe that doesn't matter. What we need to notice is that this structure is connecting heaven and earth, earth and heaven. 
Now, there are angels coming up and down this, this ladder or this stairway, but I want to encourage us not to get distracted by the angels because actually the presence of angels are not the most important thing in this story. The most important person in this story, in fact, the center point of this story, is God himself, who we discover is at the top of this staircase, and he's kind of looking over Jacob. God is the central focus of this dream. Now, oftentimes, we'll refer to this story as being Jacob's ladder, but actually neither the ladder nor the angels are really the important thing. What is it that changes Jacob's life in this encounter? It's not the ladder and it's not the angels, the dramatic things, but actually it's about what God says to him, coupled with how Jacob chooses to respond in the moment. God speaks, Jacob responds. That's what changes his life. So in verses 12 to 15, God makes to Jacob this utterly undeserved and thoroughly unmerited threefold promise. Now, as he's making this promise, Jacob would have recognized this as being a repeat of the covenant promise that God had already made to um, Jacob's ancestor, Abraham. Three things. He said, I will be with you, I will protect you, and I will bless you. No wonder this is is, is a kind of wow moment. No wonder this is an awesome moment. And I mean that in the old-fashioned sense of the word awesome, not awesome wicked, you know, but awesome, wow, fear-inducing moment before God where heaven is meeting earth. This is a wow moment for, for Jacob. And it's utterly undeserved, and Jacob is an unworthy wretch. He's a stinking sinner. And do you notice God still blesses him? He is so unworthy, and yet God still blesses him. That's grace. And God, as he says these things to Jacob, is using the language of promise. He's saying, I will be with you. It's a certainty. It's a promise. He's saying, I will protect you. You can rely on me in this, Jacob. He's saying, I will bless you. As I promised your ancestor, Abraham, I make this promise to you too as his descendant. He doesn't deserve it, and yet God blesses him. It's grace. You see, in the economy of God's grace, even a life that's broken and a life that's seemingly beyond repair can still bear fruit. Now, I've been thinking to myself this week in wrestling somewhat with this story, how would I have responded if I'd had a similar dream to this? I wonder how you would have responded. I've got a horrible feeling I might just have flippantly concluded I had way too much cheese for dinner, but Jacob seems to have a different response. Jacob responds with both words and with works, with both a wow and a vow. So first of all, he says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place, he says. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What an intriguing response. Remember, Jacob wasn't looking for God, so when God comes to Jacob in a dream, it's something of a surprise, and you rather get the sense with the story that it's only with the benefit of hindsight that Jacob was able to realize the presence of God there in that certain place. As the thought of encountering God in this certain place sinks deeper and deeper into Jacob's heart and soul, he's struck with awesome fear, it says in verse 17. And in a sense, no wonder he is. This is the great God who is the creator of all things. Jacob here is having an encounter with the the great God who made that mind-blowing promise to his ancestor Abraham. 
This is a holy God who can't abide sin, and yet he welcomes souls like me. This is the God who comes to a deceptive sinner and offers to him hope. This is the God who redeems men and women, boys and girls, out of the pit of destruction. This is the God who pardons the vilest offender who would only believe in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the God who did this for Jacob, and it's the God who has done exactly the same thing for me and maybe for you. Wow is the right response before a God who appears to us, given the reality of our brokenness. Wow is the right response, but so too is Jacob's next response, which is to make a vow before God, a promise if you like. So he makes this vow, and in this moment of making this vow, Jacob is running home. Now he's not running home to Beersheba, which is where he started out from. If you know the story, it it took him about another 20 years to get back there. But he's running home into the embrace, into the arms of God. His relationship with God is going to be restored. You see, Jacob's discovery of God's awesomeness leads to this nondescript place being renamed Bethel, meaning holy ground or um, house of God. And Jacob declares, didn't he, that this place is going to be the gate of heaven, and Jacob worships, which is the only right and the only proper response. Now, Jacob does what any one of us would have done, given this situation. He anoints his pillow. When, When was the last time you anointed your pillow? You did last night. Wonderful. Thanks, Ruth. That wasn't meant to be interactive, but it was a beautiful moment uh, that we've just shared. He anoints his pillow. It's, It's a really uncomfortable pillow as well, but he anoints it. And in anointing it, this is an act of consecration. This is an act of worship. It's an act of heartfelt response to a holy God who is lavishing his grace upon Jacob. Despite Jacob's deceitful actions and his flawed character, God chooses to bless him abundantly anyhow. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm wrestling with something here. Why does God bless someone who is so deceptive? Read Romans chapter 9. You discover the answer because the Apostle Paul wrestled with exactly the same question, and he gives the answer. Jacob makes this promise in response to the awesomeness of God in this moment. His wow turns into a vow. Now, I don't know if you noticed in in verse 20 that when Jacob repeats back to God the threefold promise that God had made to him in verse 15, Jacob ends up using the word if in his repetition of that promise when we get to verse 20. He said, if God will be with me, if God will protect me, if God will bless me, then the Lord will be my God, if then. Well, I wonder what's going on here. I guess one interpretation is that here Jacob is doubting the promise that God has made to him. His use of the word if and then maybe indicate that Jacob is actually thinking, well, God's promises are a bit flaky, they're uncertain, they're untrustworthy. Now, if doubt in this moment is the right interpretation, and I think it's one, but I'm not sure it's the only one, by the way, but if it is an issue of doubt that's going on here, then I think there's hope for me. Because if I'm really honest, then sometimes my faith begins with the word if, but it ends with the word then. God, if you will only do this, then when you've done that, then I will respond and I will follow you faithfully. 
God, if you promise yourself to be faithful in this, then my response will be to follow you more wholeheartedly. All of us can respond sometimes in the journey of faith with doubt. Be encouraged by this. Your doubts and my doubts do not disqualify you and I from being in relationship with God. Isn't that good news? Our doubts do not disqualify us from being in relationship with God. Be encouraged this morning to know that if God can deal with Jacob in this moment and his possible doubts, then he can cope with yours too. But I want to suggest too that it's possible that the word if in verse 20 can also be understood perhaps more in the light of swapping it with the word since. Since God will be with me, since God will protect me, since God will bless me, so the Lord will be my God. I guess I'm wondering here, it's possible to say, well, this is a response of doubt, but also it's possible to say this is a response of faith if we understand it in the light of since instead of if. Since God has promised all this to me, therefore the only right response is to walk intimately with him. Maybe it's a statement of faith and not of doubt. Jacob somehow discovers in this moment, because God's covenant promise is secure and it's true and it's forever, the future is still bright for him, even though he's a wretched sinner. Jacob's wow leads to a vow as Jacob promises to give God a tenth, it says in those final few words, of all that he will receive from God. Now, don't miss this in the story. Up until this point in the story, Jacob has been a man who is incredibly self-centered. He's only interested in gathering stuff, power and status and wealth towards himself. And then in verse 22, he says, having had this wow moment with God and making this vow, he goes on to say, do you know what, God, everything I get from you is a blessing. And because, God, you've blessed me with this stuff, even though I don't deserve it, I'm going to make a response, which is to give back to you a tenth of everything that you've given to me. Jacob is essentially acknowledging that all he will receive from God is a gift of God's grace. He's not receiving it because he's a schemer and a manipulator, but he's receiving it because of God's grace. The deceiver has become a believer, and somehow in that moment of transformation, he stops being quite so self-centered. He's not perfect. Keep reading the story. You'll discover that as we read on. Jacob's encounter with God marks this significant turning point in his relationship with God. In this moment, he's acknowledging his own unworthiness compared to the magnitude of God's grace. Two completely contrasting things. I am so unworthy and God's grace is so magnificent and yet somehow in the economy of God, those two worlds collide. And in this moment, even though he's unworthy, Jacob is a recipient of the grace of God. Suddenly from this moment, there's a new beginning and he, he takes a journey of transformation away from a path of misery and, and destruction. Jacob receives a blessing and an inheritance he did not earn or deserve. Even though his actions and his character were so flawed, God still chooses to bless him abundantly. He's done that for Jacob and he's done that for me. You know, I'm so grateful that God never ever gives up on us. I'd have been in the bin years ago, and so would you. We could hang out in the bin together. You see, we too, if we're in Christ, have received blessings that are beyond measure, not because of our righteousness or our merit, but only because of God's grace. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. We've been adopted into God's family. We are heirs to his kingdom. We are recipients of his unconditional love, not because we're great, but because God is great. 
And you know, in our journey of faith, there are times, aren't there, where we feel unworthy, where we feel undeserving of, of God's blessing. Well, let's remember that our worthiness is not the prerequisite for God's grace. In fact, it's the absolute opposite. It's because we're so unworthy. That's what qualifies us to be recipients of the lavish grace of God. Do you know it's in the nature of God to bestow blessings upon us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He's merciful, he's loving, he's compassionate, and he always acts in line with his character. As I finish, let me take you to um, a passage in the New Testament. It's John chapter 1, verses 50 to 51. And in this moment of Scripture, Jesus is having a conversation with his sometimes sceptical and doubting disciples. There we go, doubting disciples yet again, and yet God does something amazing through them. And he turns his attention to Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you're going to see even greater things. And then Jesus goes on to quote from the story of Jacob as it's captured in Scripture. He says to Nathanael, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. That's where the quote ends. And then Jesus says, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is that title that Jesus typically uses to describe himself in the Gospels. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is drawing upon the dream of Jacob at Bethel, but he removes any reference to a ladder or a staircase. And instead, Jesus says, It's the Son of Man. It is me who is that ladder between heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who enables heaven and earth to meet. Jesus is the only one who can enable that connection between heaven and earth to happen. Jesus alone is our mediator. The one who would go to the cross on Good Friday and raise again on Easter Day, it's Jesus who has now opened up heaven by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the ladder. He's the only way that we can be in relationship. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus has made a way where there otherwise was no way. You know, maybe like in the story of Jacob, we need to recognize that the hour of our sin that breaks our relationship with a holy God. Our sin grieves our God. But too, we need to recognize the, the awesomeness of our God and have that wow moment where we discover Jesus has paid the great, cost for me, the great price for me in his death. You see, because of Jesus, we can receive a blessing and an inheritance that we didn't earn or deserve. Despite our deceitful actions and our flawed character, God chooses to bless us abundantly with an inheritance that Scripture says to us would never perish or fail. In other words, an inheritance that is eternal. That's grace being worked out in your life and my life. And it's been made possible because Jesus is now the ladder between heaven and earth. And the only right response is a vow. The only right response is a commitment to to follow Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That Jesus would take my place. That Jesus would bear my cross, the cross I was due to bear. That Jesus would lay down his life so that I could be free. Oh Jesus, I will sing of all that you have done for me. How now, well? Are you somebody who has run away from God? 
My prayer for you this morning is you'll have an encounter with God. You'll run into God. And as you have that encounter, would you come home? Home into the arms of a God who loves you and delights in you and says, my grace is sufficient for you today. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, this is our God. Lord, we thank you. Let me just be still for a moment. In the quietness, I just want to create a moment for heaven and earth to connect. God's with us by his spirit and he delights in nothing more than saying to you this morning that your heavenly father loves you and he delights in you. If only you'll trust in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven for the first time or again. Lord, we add our wow to Jacob's, and in a sense, our wow is even greater than Jacob's because we know what you've done for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. Wow. Just in the stillness, just want to invite you as well, just to picture the the size of your brokenness before a holy God. But would you see too that because of Jesus, there is a lavish, lavish, flowing, gushing waterfall of God's grace that is pouring over you because of Christ. Lord, thank you. And as we head into our next song, we're going to offer a response to God, which is to say, this is my vow, this is my commitment. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to allow you to be God. I'm going to recognize that I am the clay, that you are the potter. And as we sing, we're going to invite God to shape us, to mold us, to lead us, to guide us. In other words, we're going to invite God to be God in our lives. because he's got great plans and purposes for us, because he loves it when we discover that we're his children and that we're forgiven, that we're free because of his great gift. Lord, we thank you.